what's going on guys welcome back to consuming crime with jen and jules it is jules here before we get into today's episode let me give a huge shout out to our sponsor which is audible basically an app where you can listen to audiobooks it's super easy i have a really hard time reading i know that makes me sound illiterate but what i mean by that is if i'm not fully fully indulged in a book i can zone out and have to reread the page all over again and that's really frustrating for me so i prefer to listen to audiobooks instead of reading an actual book um, highly recommend you get two free credits on us at audibletrial.com slash consuming crime currently i am reading he is lying sis and i love it because each chapter is about what a man tells a woman or what a woman can tell a man and that's basically a lie and that's like a telltale that they're playing you it's funny because chapter one is what is it he's not ready for a relationship but he acts like your boyfriend and I've heard a lot of people do that, men and women the same, always doing that, quit playing that bullshit. But anyway, yeah, again, two free credits on us completely, um, audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime, again, that is audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. And that's it for today's sponsor, make sure you give us five stars wherever you're listening, as well as, um, please remember that I am no longer doing the Patreon, at least for right now. So if you are subscribed to the Patreon, thank you so much for your support. Um, We do have a couple episodes on there, but there will not be any new content for a while now, just so you guys know. But anyway, uh, that's it for the intro. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So I'm continuing to cover American Detective with Lieutenant Joe Kenda, and this is episode three. This one's called, and it's on Discovery Plus, this one is called Hazard Lights but I'm calling it Missing on the Side of the Road. On March 25th, 2012, in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, Ronald Jacobs is driving around the northern Vermont area. Where is it? Um, More specifically, Goss Hollow Road. This is a dirt road. There's really nothing around this area. And he's calling his friend Melissa. He's calling her over and over again. She's not answering, but he knows that she's in this area and he's very, very worried about her. Immediately, I'm suspicious of him because I'm like, how do you know she's here? Very, very sus, my guy. Let's continue. So he's looking for his friend, Melissa Jenkins. He ends up finding her car on the side of the road with the hazard lights on, hence the name. He goes up to the car and he sees that she is not there, but her two-year-old son, Tim, is there. He's fine. He's not a mark on his body. He's just sitting there. I don't know if he was crying or if he was calm. In the documentary, or the way they dramatized it, he was sitting there calmly. So I... I don't know what happened. If it was just her car, I would think maybe she, I don't know, has having a mental breakdown or something, but her son's in the car, so something is definitely wrong. The documentary is interviewing Robert Cushing, who was a current captain of Vermont State Police, and at the time, he was a lieutenant. Or at the time of the disappearance, I should say, he was a lieutenant, but I'm going to refer to him as Lieutenant Cushing because at the time, he was a lieutenant. He was at home sleeping when he received the phone call of the car found on the side of the road and he says, you know, it piqued my interest enough. So I went like it piqued your interest enough. That's kind of your job. Do things have to be interesting for you to go check it out? Just a thought. Like I said, this was on Goss Hollow Road, this area, nothing around, dirt, middle of nowhere. Her son had been taken to a relative, so he was not there by the time Detective Cushing showed up. Lieutenant Cushing. Let's not mess that up this time. Melissa was well known in the area. This was a smaller town. She grew up on a farm. 
She was a single mother. She was a teacher at an academy, and the student does say that she was really warm. She was really loving. Her son always came first, which is how it should be. That's good. And she was also a waitress, so she was working her ass off, and she seems to be a very, very sweet girl. Like, who would grab her, take her? What is going on? Lieutenant Cushing and his wife knew her from that restaurant, so this was sort of personal for the lieutenant. They found a smashed cell phone in her car, and they sent that back to hopefully recover something from it later on. They also found a shoe that appeared to belong to Melissa at the scene, as well as a black hat on the ground. They made note of the hat because they think that that was not Melissa's. They think that it was whoever had had something to do with this. They also found footprints and tire marks. The tire marks indicated that another car had sped away from this scene. They're assuming that somebody found her and took her. I don't think so. I mean, it's. I think it's safe to assume that she drove out here willingly. Nobody just found her. It seems to me like somebody called her. It, it has to. It had to have happened. So now it's a race against time. If she is missing, is she still alive? Where the hell is she? Like, someone has to know something. So they start interviewing everyone, including Ronald and the baby, Tim. They called Ronald, who was the guy that um, reported the car missing. She had told Ronald that she was going to go out and help somebody with their car trouble. Detectives are like, who? Did she say who she was going to go help? And he's like, no, she didn't say anything. Just weird. You should definitely say. I don't know. I have a hard time believing that she didn't say who she was going to help. That's another thing that's really, really suspicious to me on his part. Detectives search within a half a mile of the car in complete darkness, and they find nothing when doing this. So I guess they're going to come back to this later. They went to interview the two-year-old, her son, Tim. A relative brought him in, and they had to have a special investigator come in and talk to him because children are really hard to interview. You don't want to scare them, but you also want to get, like, accurate answers. Detectives asked them, you know, how many people took your mommy or how many people were there plus your mommy and he puts up the his fingers and says two when they asked him what happened to her he made a choking motion to his own throat so he witnessed his mother being attacked at two years old i don't know if he would remember that i would imagine it's traumatic enough to where it would affect him growing up that bothers me to no avail this was definitely a kidnapping Detectives gather a large team and they start searching immediately. They also call John Jenkins, who was Melissa's brother. They bring him in and they start asking questions. They say, when was the last time you saw her? He says, I saw her a couple nights ago. Was there anything off about her? And he's like, no, everything was normal. She seemed fine, nothing crazy, nothing violent, nobody's threatening her. And they start asking him about her past relationships. And he goes, yeah, actually, she did have a relationship with this guy, Ronald and he wanted to make it a relationship but she didn't want him like that she wanted to just be his friend so now the detectives are like hmm and they turn their eye to ronald who again was the man that found the car and also the guy that uh, she supposedly called before this happened they go to his record and they see that he was charged in the past for giving false information to police officers yet another thing that is suspicious that he's doing They call him in for questioning, and he does admit we did date in the past, but she didn't want to be serious, but it was fine by me. I didn't make it a big deal. In fact, she confided in him a lot about the baby's father, who was not involved in the child's life. I'm sorry, I don't think she confided in him about the baby's father. I think she confided in him as if he was the father, like to give parental advice, I think. 
it was kind of vague how they described this in the documentary. Anyway, they were friends. They asked him about his boots. So he takes off his boots and they compare it against the boot tracks that were found in the dirt. They also found evidence of the phone calls from the beginning, like what he said in the beginning about the time, and it did match up the timing. And the boots did not match. After this point, detectives thought, okay, he must have nothing to do with it, and they let him go. They go to the baby's father. His name is Bruce Roberts. They have him in for questioning, and now they're thinking, like, was this a visitation custody battle kidnapping? He says on this night, he was at work, which was 80 miles away from the scene. And fortunately for him, a bunch of coworkers, his managers, he has multiple people that can account that he was definitely at work around the time of the disappearance. So now he's out. Detectives are thinking this has to be somebody in her circle. This has to be somebody that she trusted enough to go out in the middle of nowhere and help with their car. They go to her residence and start to search around. They're looking for a forced entry, foul play, which I think is irrelevant just because it's clear that she went out willingly because she put the baby in the car seat. That's enough for it to be willing unless somebody went to her house, put a gun to her head. And even at that point, if they knew they weren't going to harm the child, why not leave the child at her house? Then again, I'm not a detective. I just think, why would it have happened at the house? That's just, they were saying it probably started at the house. I don't think so. They do, however, find a business card that they take note of for Prue Plowing, which had the names Patricia and Alan Prue on it. So let's remember that. Sorry if I keep, like, rocking my chair. I'll try to stop doing it. It's kind of annoying. I can see in, like, the little viewfinder or mirror, whatever. This business card could be completely meaningless, but according to Joe Kenda, Lieutenant Joe Kenda, in Murder Investigations, everything is in until it is absolutely out. I love that motto. That's a cool motto. Um, So, her disappearance rocked the entire community, and this is a small town, so things like this just don't happen everyone's scared at this point they're thinking if somebody as sweet as her as kind as her as successful as she is you know in raising her child and having all these jobs can be abducted then nobody is safe detectives start thinking worst case scenario and so now they go from looking for her to looking for her body they start looking in places where they think somebody would dump a body leave a body hide a body um and they do find this area which is 10 miles out of town I guess I didn't make note of what the area was called. I don't know. Um, But it's an area of water, body of water. And detectives do see something in the water that looks a little bit off. So as they're getting closer, they do notice feet. And then they get closer. And it is, in fact, a blonde female body. And she is nude. She was identified as Melissa Jenkins, the woman that disappeared. They see bruising on her upper torso so but they're not able to get super close because they're not the medical examiner and also cinder blocks around her waist as well as rope that loosely tied her wrists and feet together whoever did this clearly tried to submerge her body with the bricks but obviously failed because she floated back up later on in the autopsy they were able to see small circular dots that were parallel to each other and like equally equal in distance this was indicative that she was stunned by a stun gun multiple times in multiple areas and there was also severe severe bruising around her throat area it was determined that her cause of death was manual strangulation so now 
it's a homicide investigation and they also don't really have much they go to her work and they start thinking maybe there's gossip among co-workers which i never thought of but that's a really good idea before i was on leave it's definitely i mean all of my girls in accounting always knew like my cheese man, all my gossip. So if I'm working and I ever go missing, definitely check out accounting because they will tell you my whole life. They will tell you who hates me, who loves me. Every, I mean, assuming the girls pay attention. But anyway, that's a really good strategy. I love this. But unfortunately, she is not involved in gossip. I mean, fortunately, you shouldn't. I mean, it's addicting. I know it's bad. But anyway, she is not involved in gossip. They get nothing. She is sweet. She is caring. She is loving. She is good with her students. If anything, they find out that she is a very patient teacher, a lot more patient than others, and they get nothing from her work. And then they start thinking, okay, what about her emails? What about her grade book? Does she give anybody like an F and they were pissed at her? And you guys, they don't find anything. Like, that's, which is really a bummer. But Lieutenant Joe Kenda puts it really good. He says, I know it's a bummer to find a bunch of dead ends, but it's better to know what didn't happen. That way you get closer to what did happen. So I like that. Now, finally, we have something her cell records are in from the broken phone in the car. Before the call to Ronald, Melissa received a phone call from a track phone number, also known as a burner phone. Detective Jokenda tells us that people think that it means you can't be traced, but it actually can be traced to the time, the date, and the first place of purchase. So, we got him? We had the person? Is that what that means? Okay, let's continue. This phone was purchased in Littleton, Littleton? Littleton, New Hampshire. They got cell tower hits from where she was abducted and the scene where the body was disposed. All they have to do now is find who bought the phone because that is definitely enough circumstantial evidence to put somebody in prison. They just gotta figure out who the hell did it. So, they go to the manager and they say, this was the time. This was the day this phone was purchased. Who bought the phone? The manager finds the buyer and tells them, oh, they paid via check. The check was signed by Patricia Prue, which was the name on the Prue Plowers business card. This would have been the two suspects, Alan and Patricia Prue, that Tim, the son, was talking about. Now they gotta talk to Patricia and Alan. Coincidentally, Patricia and Alan were already at the station and they were reporting fraud. They were trying to say, they were saying that they had their identity stolen, including checks. So either they got, you know, their identity got stolen or their, this is super premeditated. Like this was talked about and like planned to the T. Detectives asked where they were on that day. They say we were in Littleton, New Hampshire running errands. We went to a fast food place and we were in bed by 7.30. Detectives ask, do you know Melissa Jenkins? And they say, yeah, we met her when we did plowing for her. We snowed, we snowed her plow. <laughs> I'm sorry. We, what the f We plowed her snow. That sounds really They plowed snow for her a year ago. And ever since then, they never saw her again. So, which is, I guess that's what they're saying. That's their story. The detectives let them go, and they weren't ready at this time to turn the interview into an interrogation. They knew that they wanted to dig more, but they wanted to have more before they continued to question the couple. I, I wish they would have interviewed them separately first, and then together, so that they wouldn't have time to come up with a story. I mean, 
I guess if they did it anyway, they would already have a story, so. Never mind. I'm just a civilian. They now have the video from the store to see who purchased this phone. You guys, they see Patricia and Alan in the track phone aisle, looking at track phones, picking up the track phone, putting it on the register, getting it scanned, swiping their, wait, writing a check, everything. It's them. They did it. They bought this phone. They killed Melissa Jenkins. This is all circumstantial evidence, but if you remember from my previous episode, circumstantial and physical weighs the same. But you want to get the physical evidence? Check this out, guys. They get footage from the drive-thru where she said they went to eat at that fast food place. In the drive-thru, because you know how there's cameras that, tell, that show you like that window? They see Alan Prue wearing that exact same hat that was found at the crime scene. Like, fool, you didn't notice that you dropped your hat at the crime scene? Like, the tire marks, the, the boot prints, like, the... I mean, this was just a... Like, they thought they were super smart, but obviously... Obviously not. I guess it's a good thing that they're stupid. They're stupid and they're assholes. Like, just the thought of, like, this is a single mother. She's doing her best by her son. And, like, you couldn't find a... I'm... Actually, nobody deserves to die. That sentence sounded like it was going to a very bad place, and I'm sorry. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, come on, dude, just stop killing people. What the... For, and why? And why? You guys want to know why they did this to her? Just wait. They brought the couple in again, and this time they interviewed them separately. Patricia is denying everything. Deny, deny, deny. They show her the video. Nope, that's not me. Nope, I didn't do it. No, 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 no. Blah, 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 blah. Nope, she stops talking, and then she asks for a lawyer. So... They're done with her, they're pissed off, they're done with her shit, and now we're talking to Alan. Now, Alan is not necessarily denying everything, and they, the interview or interrogation starts off normal, and then, this is kind of weird because I looked down at my phone to, like, check a message, and then I looked up and they, like, spit in their hand, Alan and the detective, and, like, shook. Like, oh, spit shake, and I had to rewind. I was like, why the f- why did they ew ew apparently the um alan had said oh spit shake for the truth and like i know they're detectives and you gotta do what you gotta do to get a confession but like oh dog like how would you do this in covid days would you like spit on your elbow i don't that's gross anyway they do that and now alan is opening up about that night old thing pisses me off but Alan and Patricia wanted a girl that they could play with, and they wanted her to be willing. Patricia was bisexual, and they did have threesomes in the past. They start talking about wanting a better girl, and they become obsessed with Melissa, probably at the time that they plowed snow for her. They pick up that track phone, call her on it, she comes down, pulls up. Next thing they knew, they were on the ground strangling her. It was odd to detectives because... Alan didn't even ask her if she wanted to have an affair. She just came out of the car and he attacked her on a whim. Which makes sense. They couldn't have been planning just to ask her to have an affair because why go through the buying the burner phone? Are you trying to hide the fact that you want a threesome? They definitely planned to kill her. He starts choking her and then he puts her in the back of their car and Patricia kept choking her. They dragged her out of their car with a tarp, took her clothes off, dumped bleach i guess to get rid of fingerprints or something and then loaded her down with the blocks or tied her up as well and they just left her and when asked if she fought back 
Alan says, sort of. She sort of fought. Like, no. I guarantee you, she fought like hell. Like, there's no... She has her two-year-old son in the car. Like, fuck you, dude. Fuck you. You know she fought. You're just like... I just... I'm sorry. I'm getting... I have to bloop that out. Good luck. Editing. Fun stuff. <sighs> he says, something was wrong with me that night. I don't know what got into me. Like, that... There is something wrong with you, period. Like period they took advantage of how sweet she was they took advantage of the fact that she was willing to go help them with their car which is like call triple a if they really didn't see her this whole time then she is very very sweet she is so kind for picking up the phone and going to them please for the love of everything you guys if somebody i don't care if it's your mama well maybe if it's your mom but you know what i mean please don't go to the side of the road to help somebody like triple a exists it does and she was so sweet and it sucks because we live in a world where you like the sweetest people end up in the most vulnerable positions because they're just so willing to be there for you and it's not fair it's not fair but in a lot of these cases nobody deserves to die you know if not all of them, I mean, except for when they get the death penalty, but that's a whole political conversation I don't want to have right now. It's weird because Lieutenant Joe Kenda says they didn't know that her child was there the whole time, which cannot be true. First of all, how would you know? I believe that they did know the child was there because of the fact that her broken phone was in her car, which means they had to have broken it and threw it in, into her car and seen the child in passing at one point. You would think, you would just assume. Hopefully they either didn't know or if they did, obviously they didn't think to touch him. And regardless, at least, at least they did not harm her son. When asked, what would you say to Melissa right now if she was sitting here? He says, terribly sorry, you're a nice person, you deserve to watch your baby grow up. And he sounds like that too. He sounds very like monotone, like he doesn't give a But then he starts crying. Well, you're, okay, you're probably crying because you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life, but you're not crying because you're sorry. They both get charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder and the kidnapping. Alan gets life in prison and Patricia takes a plea deal and is sentenced to life without parole. That was... So I don't get it. I don't know if he got life... They just said he got life in prison, which is 25 years. And Patricia has life without parole, which is her whole life, basically. But she took a plea, so why does he get less time? Maybe the documentary worded it funny, but that's how they said it. That's pretty much it for today. Um, rest in peace to Melissa Jenkins. And Tim is... How old is he? This is 2012, so he has to be 10 or 11 years old. There's not much else to say on the case. There's not much else that I know. Anyway, that's it for today, guys. Make sure you give us five stars wherever you're listening. Again, make sure you check out Audible. And that's it. Yeah. Thanks for consuming crime with me today and you will hear slash see me next week.